You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Uh, Well, tonight we're in Ezekiel chapter 29. Ezekiel chapter 29. We are walking our way through this uh, lengthy Old Testament book. And we made it to 29 chapter. We'll start speeding up a little bit. Uh, Tonight we're going to cover four chapters, Lord willing. We're going to go pretty quick and just kind of just kind of skim the surface of some of these chapters, then we'll kind of tie it all together with some takeaways um, at the end. But just a reminder as to what this book is about. It's it's a book uh, about the Jews in captivity. Uh, Because of their rebellion against the Lord, the Lord allowed the Babylonian Empire to come and overthrow Judah, the southern kingdom, to overthrow the city of Jerusalem, and to take thousands of Jews back to Babylon uh, into exile or into captivity. And during their time there, they were there for decades, God called a priest named Ezekiel to give some messages to the Jews there and to surrounding nations. And so Ezekiel is God's mouthpiece during this really dark time in Jewish history. And if you look there in your notes, there's a, a basic outline. Chapters 1 through 3 uh, is a, uh, a detailing of the prophet's call to ministry, Ezekiel's call to preach. And then the second part of this book, we see uh, a message of judgment for Jerusalem and Judah. So God's speaking to his people. But then in part 3... Uh, it's as if Ezekiel turns his back to the people he's talking to, the Jews, and begins to speak to all the other nations' uh, messages of judgment. That's where we find ourselves tonight. And then part four is a message after the fall of Jerusalem. In the first part of the book, uh, part two, God keeps saying, Jerusalem's going to fall, Jerusalem will be destroyed, uh, Jerusalem will be overthrown, and, and that happens. We, we'll see that. And there's a message after the fall of Jerusalem. And then part five, there's a vision of restoration. There's some messages of hope, and we will see those soon. Dr. Kendall Easley, and I'll quote him twice tonight, summarizes this book by writing, From Exile in Babylon, Ezekiel's stunning visions and startling symbolic acts were prophecies for the Israelites to teach God's sovereign plan over them in the history of his kingdom so that they shall know that I am the Lord. So God's reminding his people in other nations uh, that he's working the way that he's working to get their attention, that they might know that he is the Lord, he is the one true God. And Ralph Alexander quotes, um, uh, or, or, or I'm going to quote Ralph Alexander uh, about this third part of the book, the, these messages for foreign nations. He writes, The messages in this series turn to denounce the surrounding nations that had rejoiced over Judah's downfall and had hoped for personal spoil and gain. God announced judgment on these nations lest their gleeful taunts continue and the exiles question his faithfulness to his promises. So the other nations are watching the Babylonians systematically destroy the Jews. And they they don't like the Jews, so they're cheering. Go Babylon! Go get them! You know... And all of a sudden, Ezekiel says, well, wait a minute, Babylon's coming for you too. (laughs) And and that's what this third part of the book is 
about. So last week we studied Tyre, which figured prominently. There was a large section just for the nation of Tyre, and we saw how the king of Tyre really was a was a was a um, or the one who was behind the prince of Tyre's evil and pride was the king who's called the one called the king of Tyre, who I believe is a picture of Satan himself. And we talked about that last week. Well, this week we're going to look at how God addresses the mighty nation of Egypt. And so it's interesting because we all have some background, even from grade school, learning about Egypt. And Egypt figures prominently in the biblical narrative. And the Lord has some things to say uh, for the nation of Egypt. Now, just kind of catch you up to speed. Egypt is the seventh nation addressed in this section of uh, the book. And more attention is given to Egypt than any of the other nations. So that kind of speaks to their their prominence and their importance uh, in uh, world history during this time. We're going to look at four chapters tonight consisting of seven messages. So there are seven distinct messages for the nation of Egypt. And we know there are seven distinct messages because each time a new message starts, we see this phrase, the word of the Lord came. So Ezekiel said, the word of the Lord came to me, and then he speaks that message uh, to the nation of Egypt. And so again, Egypt was a world power during this time and, and uh, was very uh, instrumental in uh, the unfolding plan of God for his people. Uh, we, we see them uh, show up in different times in Israel's history. Probably the most well-known time that Egypt shows up in Israel's history is when the Jews were in Egyptian bondage uh, in Egypt for about 400 years. And then God sent Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Of course, Pharaoh said no, and so God sent ten plagues, and God delivered the Jews out of Egyptian slavery. He parted the Red Sea. They walked through on dry ground. God uh, destroyed Pharaoh's army. And so that's a very well-known story from the book of Exodus. And, and that's often what we think of when we think of the nation of Egypt. But each of these seven messages, I want to just walk you through the seven messages very quickly tonight. Each of these seven messages uses a different metaphor, a different word picture to help us to... Uh, understand the impending judgment for Egypt, the judgment that is coming for the nation of Egypt. So let me just walk you through the seven messages. I'll show you the seven metaphors, and then at the end we will again tie it all together with three major takeaways, some things that apply uh, to our lives. So what's the metaphor in message number one? The great dragon of the Nile. That's the, the picture that he uses, the great dragon of the Nile. So look there in Ezekiel chapter 29, verse 1. The Bible says, In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. So you'll see that phrase seven times in these next four chapters. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt, Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And here, here's how he describes Pharaoh. The great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams. It says, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your stream stick to your scales. 
I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. I will cast you out into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. You shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered to the beasts of the earth, to the birds of the heavens. I give you as food. Not a pretty picture. So the Lord says to the Pharaoh at this time, and if we look at the time and we look at world history, this is probably a Pharaoh named Hophra. And he says to Hophra, the, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt at this time, uh, you are like a great dragon in the Nile. And I'm going to snatch you out of that river and I'm going to throw you into the open wilderness and you will become food for the beasts. And so again, this is all word picture to speak of God's judgment for the nation of Egypt. And so he calls him here the great dragon of the Nile. And look what it says there in verse 6. When I bring about this judgment... Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. They're they're going to see the reality of who I am when I bring about this judgment. So he calls him here the great dragon of the Nile. Message number two. Message number two. The word picture or the metaphor is this. Egypt is payment for Babylon. Payment for Babylon. Look what it says in... Uh, Chapter 29, verse 17. In the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. There's that phrase again to help us to understand. This is the second message. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald. Every shoulder was rubbed bare, yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he performed against her. So he's basically saying here, I use Babylon as an instrument of judgment against Tyre. We talked about that last week. And he's saying they had nothing to show for their efforts. There were, there were, there were no spoils taken from their victory. So look what he says next. Therefore, verse 19, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt... To Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he shall carry off its wealth, despoil it, plunder it. It shall be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored. Because they worked for me, declares the Lord God. So here's what he's saying. Egypt, you are going to be payment uh, for the nation of Babylon. I'm going to give you as an act of judgment to Babylon as... Uh, wages for their efforts. They will plunder you. The the riches of Egypt will be their spoils of war. And so uh, Egypt here is pictured as payment for the nation of Babylon. Message number three, the sword. The sword. Look what it says in chapter 30, verse 20. Chapter 30. I'm sorry, verse 1. Chapter 30, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, alas, for the day, the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. That means the day of judgment. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword shall come upon Egypt, and anguish shall be in Cush. When the slain fall in Egypt and her wealth is carried away, her foundations are torn down. Cush and Put and Lud and all Arabia and Libya, the people of the land that is in league, shall fall with them by the sword. So this picture of the sword speaks of the judgment that 
Egypt and really all of northern Africa, those are the different nations that are mentioned, all of northern Africa would experience at the hand of God. So the sword here is a picture of the sure judgment of God. Message number four. I told you we're moving quickly. We're just kind of skimming the surface. Message number four. We see the picture of the broken arm. The broken arm. Look in chapter 30, verse 20. Chapter 30, verse 20. In the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. There's that phrase again. Son of man, I've broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And behold, it has not been bound up to heal it by binding it with a bandage so that it may become strong to wield the sword. And so the Lord's saying... I'm going to bring about such devastation that Pharaoh won't be able to recover. His arm will be broken. He won't be able to pick up a sword again, uh, figuratively speaking. He won't be able to take up arms again because this this, uh, overthrow will be so great. Babylon will will conquer them and destroy them. And it will be as if Pharaoh has a broken arm. He says there in verse uh, 22, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, will break his arms, both the strong arm and the one that was broken, and I will make the sword fall from his hand. In other words, this will be utter devastation. This will be complete devastation. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations, disperse them among the countries, and I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand. But I will break the arms of Pharaoh. He will groan before him like a man Mortally wounded, I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall. Then, here it is again, they shall know that I am the Lord. When I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon, he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. And so he's basically saying here, again, I will take away the strength that the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, has to even fight, to even uh, form an army. This is the, the picture of the broken arm. Message number five, we're just moving on through, is the picture of the fallen tree. The fallen tree. Look in chapter 31, verse 1. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to his multitude. You think God's being thorough here with the messages? Whom are, are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, he says, with beautiful branches and forest shade out of towering height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its bows grew large, its branches long, from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its bows. Under its branches all the beasts of the field give birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness, and the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant waters. Which nation is he talking about here? Assyria. He's describing them as a great tree. Assyria was another world power. He says, The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its bows. Neither were the plain trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was equal in its beauty. I made it beautiful, God says, in the mass of its branches. All the trees of Eden envied it. They were in the garden of God. Therefore, 
Thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds, and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it on the mountains and all the valleys. Its branches have fallen. Its bows have broken and all the ravines of the land. All the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of the heavens. And on its branches all the beasts of the earth. All this in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds. That no trees that drink water may reach up to them in height. For they are all given over to death to the world below among the children of man with those who go down to the pit. And so here's what he's saying. Hey, Egypt... You see Assyria, great nation, powerful, mighty, a tall, tall tree, proud of its height. It's going to be cast down. And what he's doing here is he's foreshadowing how Egypt would be cast down too. He's showing him here the, the picture of the fallen uh, tree. He even says in verse 18, Whom are you thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude declares the Lord God. So he's saying to Pharaoh, just like Assyria fell, Egypt will fall too. The picture of the fallen tree. Message number six. We see the word picture of the net being caught in a net. Look in chapter 32, verse 1. Chapter 32, verse 1. Just in a quick survey. I want to tie this all together in a moment, but just a quick survey. Look in chapter 32, verse uh, 1. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, a, a, a song of sorrow, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations. But you are like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers. Trouble the waters with your feet. Foul their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, I will throw my net over you with a host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet. I will cast you on the ground. On the open field I will fling you. I will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you. I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcasses. I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood, and the ravines will be full of you. So what's the Lord saying here? Again, you think you're a lion. You're a, you're a nation of the, of, the, of the river. You're right there. You're, you're, your whole um, source of life is the Nile River. You're, you're like a, 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 a dragon of the sea, and I'm going to throw my net on you in the form of the Babylonian Empire and yank you out of Egypt and, and cause you to be destroyed. So the picture here is Egypt being caught in a net. He's saying this to Pharaoh. And then we get to message number 7 there in chapter 32. And this is the picture of the pit. The pit. Look in chapter 32, verse 17. Chapter 32, verse 17. In the twelfth year, the twelfth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, the seventh time he says this, in reference to Egypt. Son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt and send them down, her and the daughters of uh, uh, majestic nations, to the world below, to those who have gone down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and be laid to rest with the uncircumcised. They shall fall amid those who are slain by the sword. Egypt is delivered to the sword. Drag her away. All her multitudes, the mighty chief, shall speak of them with their helpers out of the midst of Sheol. 
They have come down, they lie still, and uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Assyria is there in verse 22. Uh, verse 24, Elam is there. Verse 26, Meshach Tubal is there. 29, Edom is there. Chapter, uh, verse 30, the princes of the north are there. All of them, all the Sidonians. Uh, verse 31, when Pharaoh sees him, he will be comforted for all his multitude. Pharaoh and all his army slain by the sword declares the Lord God. Here's what he's saying. I will destroy Egypt. And they will, be, they will be cast into the pit, Sheol, the place of the dead, uh, the place of uh, eternal separation, Sheol, and they'll be joined there by many other ungodly nations that God judged. But he uses the pit, the, the place of the dead, Sheol, as a picture of their final destination, God's final judgment on them. So, deep breath. I know that, that we, we, you know, we went through a lot of stuff there, but message number one, we see the picture of the great dragon. Message number two, payment for Babylon. Message number three, the sword. Message number four, the broken arm. Message number five, the fallen tree. Message number six, caught in a net. Message number seven, the pit. So I think we see here that God is being very, very thorough in getting the message across, right? Pharaoh, Egypt is not going to end well for you. You are experiencing schadenfreude. You know what schadenfreude is? Schadenfreude is when you uh, find delight in the demise of another. So when they saw the Jews being judged, schadenfreude. Oh, we're so glad the Jews are being destroyed and being harmed. And God's saying, that will come to an end and you will experience judgment at my hand. So seven messages, seven pictures, seven metaphors, if you will, to get the point of God's judgment across. Now... What does that mean for us in this room? What are some takeaways? What are some things that you and I can learn about the way that God addresses Pharaoh and addresses the nation of Egypt? Takeaway number one. Pride leads to destruction. Pride leads to destruction. What is the major issue here uh, with Egypt? They were, they were basically being judged for two reasons. Reason number one is they brought harm to God's people. Over in chapter 29, verses 6 through 9, we see that, that uh, they were not helpful to God's people. They were harmful to God's people. But the major thing we keep saying or seeing in the description of Pharaoh and the description of Egypt is pride. For example, look in chapter 29, verse 3. Chapter 29, verse 3. Behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams. And look at this next phrase. That says, my Nile is what? My own, I made it for myself. You know, uh, Pharaohs were considered to be deity. They were considered to be gods. The Pharaohs, the kings of Egypt, they were, they were worshipped. And, and they, they were believed to have supernatural powers. And so... Pharaoh's strutting around and say, this great river that gives us life, the, the Nile River, the mighty Nile, it's mine. I made it. I'm the God. I'm the Pharaoh. And the Lord says, because of that pride to take credit for what I have done, judgment is coming. Uh, look what it says in verse 9 of this same chapter. Chapter 29, verse 9. He says, the land of, uh, the land of Egypt... 
shall be a desolation and a waste, then they, then they will know that I am the Lord. Because you said, the Nile is mine and I made it. So again, he speaks of the pride of Pharaoh uh, and the, the pride of uh, this nation over the mighty Nile River. And so because of their pride, they would be severely judged. Now, we, we know a little bit about Egypt, uh, biblically speaking, but also from world history. You probably remember um, growing up learning about Egyptian civilization. For almost 30 centuries, 30 centuries, think about that, ancient Egypt was the preeminent civilization in the Mediterranean world. I mean, they were a big deal. They were the superpower uh, in ancient uh, times. In fact, if you look at a little bit of, of history about Egypt, they, they usually divide it into three major sections. There's the, the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom. And we have a lot of information about the different pharaohs and different leaders and different military campaigns and different projects that were undertaken. We have a lot of information about uh, the nation of Egypt. We, we instantly think about things like the Great Pyramids, the architectural feats. We think about the Sphinx and, and those other markers of Egyptian uh, progress and Egyptian technology and Egyptian uh, power and might. We know that they had a mighty army and they conquered many other um, armies. And we have a, a lot of information about Egypt, but uh, we grew in recent times in our knowledge of this nation. We knew some things about Egypt, um, but until, uh, until the 1800s, going into the 1900s, we didn't understand their language. They had, they had a language called hieroglyphics, and we didn't understand what that language meant, so we couldn't read about their history and understand all of their different conquests. Until about 1799, the French... Uh, under Napoleon, came into Egypt to, to conquer that Egypt. They wanted to kind of show their power over the British colonialism of that area. And so Pharaoh, uh, I'm sorry, Pharaoh, Napoleon comes into um, Egypt, and some of the French found this tablet called the Rosetta Stone. It eventually made it way, way back to the British, and it's in a British museum right now. And, and here's why the, the Rosetta Stone is so very important. It was written, it was uh, probably written about the second century B.C., before the time of Christ. And the Rosetta Stone has Egyptian hieroglyphics, and then it has, in a parallel column, ancient Greek to translate the hieroglyphics into the Greek language. So now scholars can look at that Greek and kind of break the code, if you will, and say, okay, this is what the Greek means, and they kind of compare it with the different hieroglyphics. And now uh, scholars know what the hieroglyphics mean. Does that make sense? So the Rosetta Stone is a really, really big deal, archaeologically speaking. So once hieroglyphics were unlocked to, to, to ancient scholars, they could then understand more about the history of Egypt. And you read these hieroglyphics that are you know, in pyramids and different places and temples and columns. Uh, we know a lot about the Egyptians. And they were a really, really big deal. The picture that emerges is of a culture... With, with really no equal in, in its art, in its architecture. Uh, they had very uh, detailed religious traditions. Uh, I mean, there, there, there was a lot that went into the nation of Egypt. They were a very, very powerful nation. Superpower. But what about now? There's a nation called Egypt. 
but it's not a superpower. It's, it, it really uh, has very little weight in the big scheme of things. Nowhere near where it used to be. So what happened? How do we go from, from you know, 30 centuries of power to, to really very little, very limited power on the world scene? What happened? Well, look what it says in chapter 29, verse uh, 13. Of, uh, yeah, Ezekiel 29, 13. For thus says the Lord God, At the end of 40 years I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to send judgment. I'm going to scatter Egypt everywhere. He says, Then I'll gather Egypt back together. I'll restore the fortunes of Egypt, bring them back to the land of Pathros, the land of their origin. I'll bring them back to their homeland. And there they shall be, what? What's it say there? A lowly kingdom. It shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms. And never again, never again exalt itself above the nations. I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations. It shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel. More on that in a moment. Recalling their iniquity that they turn to them for aid. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. So how did, how did Egypt go from... 30 centuries of superpower to a very limited role on the world stage today, Ezekiel 29 tells us that's what happened. God sent his judgment. And they'll never again be the great and mighty superpower that they were. Why? Pride. Pride was their downfall. Pride leads to destruction. And listen to me. What's true for nations is also true for individuals. I want you to hold your place, but turn with me uh, to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. Verse 18. Good verse to commit to memory. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's easy to study these, these ancient texts and you know, a long book like the book of Ezekiel and say, boy, those Egyptians, boy, they had their issues. They were prideful and, and hard-hearted towards God. And, and you know, look at them. Look at their downfall. Look at their demise. It's easy to, to uh, look at their pride and judge their pride and miss the pride in our own lives and our own hearts. What's true for a nation can be true for an individual. Pride leads to destruction. So we need to learn the lesson from the nation of Egypt. We need to learn uh, not to be proud, but to be grateful for God and His grace um, in our lives. Let me show you one more verse about that. Look over in chapter 32. Chapter 32, verse 18. Son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt and send them down, her and the daughters of majestic nations, to the world below, to those who have gone down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and be laid to rest with the uncircumcised. So he's saying, you think you're beautiful, you think you're mighty, you think you're strong, you're prideful, you will be judged. So pride leads to Destruction, and you know, pride is an is an interesting thing, because 
if we're not ruthlessly evaluating our hearts, pride in a very subtle way begins to infiltrate our lives. And most people that are full of pride aren't even thinking about it. They're just living the prideful life. And, and they, in, in a very subtle way, taking their focus off God, their dependence off, upon God, and are full of destructive pride. Pride leads to destruction. Number two takeaway. Trusting anyone other than God offends God. Trusting anyone other than God offends God. Look in chapter 31 of Ezekiel. I'm sorry, Isaiah. Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah. Hold your place in Ezekiel, but let me show you this in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 31. I wanted to show you what the prophet Isaiah had to say about Egypt and Israel's dependence upon them. Isaiah 31 verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet He is wise and brings disaster, but does not call back His words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. Now look in verse 3. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper will stumble. He who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. You look at... um, Israel's history, there are many moments where Israel gets in a bind, the Jews get in a bind, and they say, well, Egypt will help us out. And they go to Egypt for help, and it always turns out tragically. It never works out because they didn't trust God for help. They didn't seek God for help. They trusted Egypt for help, and they tried to make alliances with Egypt, and it never worked out because trusting anyone or anything other than God offends God. Listen to me. God wants you to trust Him with your life. He wants you to trust Him with your family. He wants you to trust Him with with your career. He wants you to trust Him with your relationships. He wants you to trust Him. We need His help, and He wants you to come to Him for help. He wants you to come to Him for guidance. He wants you to come to Him for wisdom. He wants you to come to Him for strength. And when you go to someone else or something else for wisdom, strength, wisdom, direction, whatever, help, And ignore God, God is offended by that. In Christ, God is your Father. And why wouldn't you go to your Father for help, for encouragement, for guidance in your life? So trusting anyone other than God offends God. So let me ask you just kind of a a question to evaluate this in your own life. When something goes wrong in your life, when something goes south, all right, something hard happens, a trial, a tribulation, a hardship, who's the first person you talk to? I want to submit to you that we need friends, we need spouses, we need you know relationships that we can encourage each other in and lean on each other, but can I... Can I encourage you that when you have a need in your life, the first one you ought to talk to is God himself? Because he cares about you more than anyone else does. Amen? He has the answers. He has the strength. He has the wisdom. Go to him. Go to God. 
Like the old hymn says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry what? Everything to God in prayer. And I think sometimes we run to, to someone or something to help us out. The, uh, the other day, uh, Abby Faith and I were, were uh, riding in the car. Abby Faith is my um, daughter. And uh, she was flipping through the, the, the radio channels and, and she landed on a country station and we were listening to the song. And there was some line, I can't remember the exact line, but something in there about I'm trying to drink the pain away. Like, you know, I'm heartbroken over my, my girl leaving me, so I'm trying to drink the pain away or something like that. And my first instinct was to just turn it, you know, like we don't need to listen to this, you know. But then I thought, no, let's talk about it. And I said, Abigail, what does that mean? What does he mean by that? And she said, well, he's saying that, that uh, if you know, he turns to um, alcohol to help him not to feel the pain of losing his, his, his girl. And I, I said, well, what, what do you think about that? I said, is that, I, said, I, said, I said, does that work? She's like, no. I said, why didn't it work? And we talked about it. Well, eventually the alcohol wears off, right? And the, the problem's still there. And so it's just, and, and I quoted to her, what a friend we have in Jesus. And I quoted, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And, and so the, the song was saying, hey, when you're having a hard time, turn to something to numb the pain. And God's saying, when you have a hard time, turn to me. I'll help you out. I'll deal with the pain and I'll help you with the, the situation you're walking through. And so trusting anyone, anything, turning to anyone, anything other than God offends God. But the reverse is also true. When you trust Him, when you trust Him, it brings a smile to His heart. He's glorified in that. Number three, and we'll be done. In the midst of the kingdoms of this earth, God is building His everlasting kingdom. So we've been studying His messages to these different kingdoms. And even in this section of of, of messages to Egypt, Assyria is mentioned, other nations are mentioned. And we see kingdoms rising and kingdoms falling. But here's what you need to understand about God. All along the timeline of human history, God is up to something. God is doing something. God is building his own kingdom. And there's a clue to this in the text, in the message to Egypt. Look in chapter 29. This is really cool. Chapter 29, verse 21. I, I was still in Isaiah and I said, that's not the right verse. Had a moment of horror thinking, I just wrote the wrong verse down. But I'm hoping Isaiah 29, 21 is the right verse. All right. Ezekiel 20, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 29. Ezekiel 29, 21. Oh, here it is. This is the right verse. He writes, on that day, he's talking about his, his judgment among the nations. On that day, I will cause a horn to spring up. That word spring up in the Hebrew is the word for the growth of a shoot. Okay, and It's used all throughout the Old Testament, particularly among the prophets. A branch being, you know, growing out of a, of a, of a, of a stump or out of a, a, a trunk of a tree. 
He says, On that day I will cause a horn to spring up to shoot up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them, and they will know that I am the Lord. This language of springing up or shooting up is used in other scriptures to speak of the Messiah. And, and, and God says throughout the Old Testament, Hey, I'm going to judge my people. I'm going to cut down the tree, but I'm going to leave a stump. And from that stump, there will be, there will be a shoot that grows. And I will maintain my people, keep my people together, preserve my people, so I can send my Messiah. So the horn here that will shoot up is a picture of the Messiah that God will send. And the Messiah will come. His name is Jesus We know that he came, he lived a perfect life, died for the sins of the world, so that if anyone from any nation, tribe, or tongue believes in him, they are redeemed, saved, and brought into the kingdom of God. Right? Jesus said it like this in John 3. If you want to be in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You can't get into the kingdom of heaven if you're not born again. But if you are born again... You come into this kingdom that God is building. So um, among the rise and fall of all the nations surrounding the Jews, God is doing something in and through the Jews. He's preserving them so that one day he can send his Messiah to come to this earth and live and die. So I told you I was going to quote Dr. Easley twice. This is one of my favorite quotes. Um, And to me, I love it because it's a one-sentence summary of the entire Bible. How would you summarize the Bible? Okay, How would you summarize the entire Word of God? You might summarize it as Jesus saves, and that's a pretty good summary. But I like this this summary of God's Word from Dr. Easley, and I think it speaks to what Ezekiel 29-21 is saying. The Lord God, through His Christ, is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for His own glory. So even in the midst of all these messages of judgment for all the other nations, God is building a kingdom. And God is still building that kingdom today. And here's the exciting thing. And this goes back into Global Impact Conference and all of that. We get to be a part of this. We get to tell people about the King, Jesus, so they can believe in Him and come into this kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so that's what God's up to. In the midst of the kingdoms of this earth, God is building his everlasting kingdom. And that is so important for us to remember. Because guess what? As long as Jesus tarries, we're going to see more nations rise and fall. Amen? We're going to see superpowers rise and fall. We're going to see prideful nations toppled. But in the midst of all of the upheaval, in the midst of all of the turmoil, in the midst of all the uncertainty of what's going on on the the global scene, God is graciously building His kingdom, a kingdom of redeemed people. And that's good news because when the dust settles on human history, the only kingdom that's going to matter is the kingdom of God. Amen? And whether or not you're in it. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.